On today's Midcourt Madness, we are going to talk about the final four bigs. It's finally here. We have, you know, two of the best teams that everyone is hoping to see in the finals, and then a couple of teams that are hoping to knock them off in this for in the final four round. Um, and then there's a little bit of a change in the college basketball landscape, I would call it bigs, and we're gonna get into that as well. So yeah, Biggs, obviously tomorrow the final four starts and we're going to get into the preview for that. But I did want to, you know, touch on the big news that came out yesterday morning um, with Roy Williams, um, the coach of 33 years, 15 years at uh, Kansas and 18 at North Carolina, um, 903 total wins. He announced his retirement yesterday. Huge news. I mean, I, I know, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about, not you and I, but just in, in general, you, you see there's a lot of conversation all the time about, um, you know, secession plans, right? Who, who's going to be the next Duke coach? Who's going to be the next Carolina coach? And, and, and those, are, those are enjoyable conversations, but, you know, you do them and you, you don't really think like, you know, you do them kind of with this idea that it's, that it's sort of around the corner, but, but you always think about it, if it it's, it's eventually coming around the corner. And, and yesterday it was here and it was just like, this kind of came, I mean, it, it kind of comes out of nowhere, but at the same time, it's not really surprising. It, it was a weird way to feel about it. How did you feel about it? I would say, you know, I expected about, you know, three or four more years out of him. Um, he did a couple of years ago. Didn't he sign an extension for like eight, eight years, I want to say? Something like that. I mean, yeah, I know as long as he wanted to coach, it was like they're going to let him coach. And so, I mean, obviously he is 70 years old. Um, I know me with my job, I, I don't want to be working till, till I'm 70. So I don't blame him by any yeah. means. I know he's, he's an avid golfer. Um, he loves to golf. I know he's got kids. He's got grandkids. I know his wife as well, his wife, Wanda. Um, so I know he wants to spend time with all of them. And so I'm sure he'll have a great retirement. Hopefully it's peaceful. Hopefully he can just, you know, relax finally after, years and years of recruiting um but i did want to touch on one thing i know you know we talk about all the time we don't want to become a north carolina podcast you know we're both fans of them but we don't we want to be a college who's podcast but i did see a tweet yesterday that i just want to touch on um it's from a guy named robert woodard who is a former pitcher for north carolina and it reads like this 2006 college world series Coach Williams walked to the upper level section of Rosenblatt Stadium. That's in Omaha where they have the College World Series every year. Somewhere in middle America, Circa John Exactly. <laughs> so, so 2006 College World Series, Coach Williams walked to the upper level section of Rosenblatt Stadium to trade seats with my parents. He told them, there's no way I'm sitting way down there and y'all are up here while your son is pitching. So he basically had great seats. He sees... This guy's uh, this guy's parents sitting in the upper deck and it's like, you know, I'm trading with them. There's no way they're going to be up there. And so I think that that just speaks to who he is really on two parts. You know, I've heard on many podcasts that he basically bleeds Carolina blue and he's not only involved in basketball. He's involved in all athletics. You'll see him at volleyball games, softball games, 
football games, you name it. Whenever he has a moment, he's going to the other athletics and he's going to support them as well. Um, and so, like I said, we don't want to touch too much on this. We do want to get into the Final Four preview, but just an interesting tweet that I saw yesterday about him. Yeah, and that it speaks perfectly to what a lot of people are saying about about old Roy is that you know he's he was just such a great character and, and so much about college basketball. What what makes part of it great is is some of the the characters, which you know because there's so much player turnover, we have to lean on on the coaches as characters, and and some of them you know, the fact that they're kind of unlikable makes it, makes it kind of enjoyable, right? We have these, these kind of villains as coaches. Like we, we like coach K as uh, as kind of a villain of college hoops. And, um, you know, Izzo is, is kind of an interesting character and, and, and Roy's kind of the same way. He's just kind of got his own style and, and so much about college basketball is not just cooking up a, cooking up a defense in the, in the lab, you know, trying to figure out X's and O's and getting this player to this spot and, this player to that spot, it's 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 being uh, it's being an ambassador for your university. It's obviously there's a ton of recruiting, and, and I think that's probably part of what pushed him out the door here. This time, it's not just recruiting high school players; it's it's re-recruiting your own players. And that why why do you need that when you're 70 years old? But he he was so good at all the other stuff. It's it's shaking hands, it's kissing babies, it's being you know it's being an ambassador for the university and. You know, you see a ton of coaches who, for whatever reason, don't work out. Like, I think Archie Miller at Indiana, I have very little doubt that he is a quality basketball coach. Um, but so much other stuff is required of these high major universities than just coaching basketball. You know, they have to be legitimate ambassadors for the university and do a ton of other stuff. And, and a lot of guys just, they just, want, they just want to coach ball. And, and, and Williams, obviously, was terrific at coaching ball. Um, but I think what makes him special and maybe what separates him from, from a lot of even good coaches who are great at coaching ball was all the other stuff in terms of his personality. And, and he does it, it seems like with, with, uh, with a lot of integrity. And, and I generally don't, I don't really care usually a ton about coaches, personalities and stuff. You know, I, I don't need my coach to be a saint, but, uh, boy, it's a lot easier to root for him when they are, you know? So, yeah. Well, uh, we don't want to talk about too much about it. Like I said, um, I know as far as you talk about succession plans, the two names that I keep hearing a lot are um, Wes Miller and Hubert Davis, Who, which I think between the two of those, I would say Hubert Davis has the better chance of getting it. Um, but if they were to go outside of the Carolina family, like who do you think? Could they pluck away a Mark Few or anyone else? Yeah, I was really, I was really interested in, in hearing about some of these, some of these from, from kind of more plugged in and, and connected reporters. Cause I, I think the the Carolina family thing is is preposterous. Um, you know, I, I I get the I get the idea. It's, it's romantic. You know, keeping guys who have, as you kind of said about Roy, bleeding the Carolina blue. Um, I don't think they have a great candidate. That there isn't. It made sense when it was Roy Williams. When uh, you know Dean Smith, Dean Smith retires. They try the Carolina family thing with a couple of coaches. It, it's not really working very well. We need to keep this in the family. Look at this. We got Roy Williams over here dominating at Kansas. That makes sense to me. There isn't another Roy Williams dominating at a Kansas or even at a, another high major program right now where it's like, uh-huh, we can get that guy. He's he's ready. Um, Wes Miller is probably the closest thing in my opinion. You know, he's done a really good job at Greensboro, but this is North Carolina. You know, like you, you – 
I think you eat first. You're you're at the big boy table. I think you can pick. I think as uh, as the uh, as the Ion College basketball guys were saying, like, there's no dumb phone call. You're North Carolina. This is maybe the most coveted job in college hoops. You can call whoever you want. You're probably not going to get. I don't think there's any chance you get Mark Few. Uh, there's no chance you probably get Jay Wright. Um, make him say no, though, right? I mean, I, I I would absolutely call Tony Bennett. I know you hate Tony Bennett's style, but the man wins a ton, and winning is cool. And to be honest with you, does he win? I always wonder, it's like, can you recruit the athletes to North Carolina easier than you can Virginia? Um, that would be an interesting conversation to have probably for another time if he were to ever get the job. I think you make him say no. Uh, I, I would say I'd be interested in, in a guy like Chris Holtman. Um, I think Matt Painter's name was thrown around. I have a hard time envisioning that one. But, yeah, I mean, you're North Carolina. Whatever whatever coaching list you come up with, I can't imagine you've got to go super far down that thing. And, John, I mean, just from like a take away the North Carolina – strip away the North Carolina family for a second here. If you can hire Tony Bennett – or you want to hire Hubert Davis? I mean, what are we what are we talking about? Yeah, as much as you know, I do like the more run and gun style of basketball um, that Roy Williams employed. Um, whereas Virginia is about as complete opposite, polar opposite of that as you can get. So I mean, it might be a little eyesore at times, but I mean, I guess if they're winning, they're winning. Take okay, maybe not Tony Bennett. Then maybe that's not the example. If you can get, if you can get. Uh, Let's say Jay Wright or Mark Few. I, I don't think you're getting Mark Few. I just I don't I don't see that one happening. Um, insert insert whoever coach you really like. Uh, before yesterday, maybe you'd have said Chris Beard. In, insert whatever that coach is, top ten coach in the country, right? Or Hubert Davis, who's been an assistant for nine years. He played for Carolina. He's in the family. There's no comparison there in, in basketball coaching resumes. You know what I mean? Isn't it? Don't you think it's a little silly? I mean, I know, I know the Carolina family thing is. It's a it's a big deal, and it and it's maybe hard to understand and quantify from from folks who are kind of on the outside. But from a basketball standpoint, how do you how do you say like I'd rather hire the guy who's been an assistant who no other program has tried to hire versus a guy who has been dominating at Little Old Gonzaga, you know, or Villanova or Ohio State or whatever. I mean, I'm having a hard time grasping that. Right, and so yeah, to answer your question, like. If I can just pick anyone, like a yeah. top five, anyone, and these are just out of the names I've seen, it would include Mark Few, it would include Jay Wright, like you said, Brad Stevens, if you could pluck him away from the Celtics. Um, Billy Donovan's another others. name that's been thrown around. Yeah, Billy Donovan. But I'm also a Bulls fan, sort of, so like... Ooh, conflict of interest. Right. Um, and then, then, yeah, tossing Tony Bennett, too. Um, and I think... Going back to the Carolina family thing, I think it just goes back to, you know, Dean Smith is the one who really built up that program years ago. Yeah. And he retired, I think it was like late 90s. And then his longtime assistant, Bill Guthridge, um, coached for two or three seasons. I think he got them to one Final Four. And then they go to Matt Doherty for two years. Um, there, there's some turmoil there from what I understand. I don't know exactly what happened. It um, fell apart on him in a big way. Yep, he got some good recruits, and really his recruiting, his final recruiting class is really what got Roy Williams his first title with Raymond Felton and Sean May. But as all of this is happening, Roy Williams is having his own success at Kansas, 
and they try and pluck away pluck him away when they hired Matt Doherty. He said no. He said that um, he had made a promise to guys like Nick Collison, Drew Gooden, that he would be there all four years when they he was recruiting them. Um, and then finally, um, from what I understand, is after uh, the turmoil with Matt Doherty, Dean Smith was basically like, you know, coach, we need you here. We need to build back the program up. And Roy Williams, you hear him talk about it all the time. He respects Dean Smith. He reveres pro- Dean Smith. Yes. Yeah. Pro- Yes. And so it's one of those things like he couldn't say no one more time. He came back and, you know, I think, I don't think he regrets it. He had a great 18 years with North Carolina. Um, yeah. I think that's where they want to keep it in the, inside the Car- Carolina family. Cause they want to keep a certain culture. They want to well, keep like wanna, those same. They want to keep that tradition alive and that you're right. The culture, which, which they built, I'm, I'm I, and then maybe and and I agree with that. You do want to kind of establish a culture, but I mean, some of these high quality coaches are great at establishing cultures. You know, I, I don't think that's like a new thing. I think one of the things about Mick Cronin that was great about at UCLA, you know, to eventually get into the Final Four talk, but the first thing he did when he got to UCLA is he starts connecting with his former former UCLA players. They're talking about how. Ryan Hollins is 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 one of the guys who played for UCLA when they made a couple of Final Fours and they and they were in the championship game in the early two thousands. He, he, he's a reporter now or a, or an analyst for CBS Sports. He, he had a cup of coffee in the NBA, right? He's not like he's not like Lou Alcindor uh, or or even you know someone that even a casual fan would know, like somebody who's super fan. I don't know, um, not Kevin Love, right? Ryan, Hall, or Ryan Hollins, he's okay, you know, nice nice college player. He, he was talking about how Cronin, he came in and he's connecting with every, all these great UCLA players from back in the day and, and trying to bring them all back together and recreate this, this family environment, which is, I think what all these colleges want to strive to, to create. And, and it's getting harder and harder with all the turnover and one and done is there's less of that, right? That, that fabric has been, has been kind of torn apart. Um, so I, I understand the, the desire to try to keep doing that and keep your culture the same, but I'm also wondering if maybe it's it's okay for that to to adapt and evolve. If, if you can get a high end coach, I think that might be worth something. And and you can you can familiarize yourself with with the Carolina way and and build up that culture and, and maybe modify that culture because um, the culture ain't worth a whole lot if you're if you're not getting any kids that can win. Yeah, and to speak on your point, you know, the last time that they did hire someone from you know outside of the Carolina family, do you know who that was? Probably Dean Smith. That's correct. And so he was able to build up that culture. So there's really nothing saying that it can't happen again. And I don't know if you know knew this, but he's really the re- reason why Roy went to Kansas in the first place because um, because Smith went to college at Kansas. So that's where the ties happened there. Um, maybe we just, maybe just keep the Kansas pipeline open and we go get Bill Self. There you go. <laughs> uh, but just to put a bow on this, we got to get into the uh, – into the final four talk here, but just gonna say, you know, to Coach Roy, because he's obviously listening to this, right? Of course, he must be. He's got yeah. nothing else yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah. To Coach Roy, I'm just gonna say, enjoy your retirement. Um, and I hope it's amazing. Hope you get many, many years on the on the golf course, um, and with your grandkids. And it's been a pleasure watching you, Coach. Well said. One one last thing. One last thing on on old Roy John is I'm I'm intrigued to get your your take on this because it's something I guess we haven't really talked about a ton even as Carolina fans. Um, 
what do you think old Roy's perception is? I mean, I know, you know, he's, he's 70 years old. He's got over 900 wins. He's one of the coaches. You can read the resume. It's incredible, right? One of the fastest coaches to 900 wins. He's got three titles. Um, he won at two of the, the bluest of blue blood programs, the two of the, the, the royalty basketball programs uh, in college hoops. Um, I don't know, though. I have a feeling there's there's some sort of he's, – he's kind of maybe not a lightning rod, but there, there's kind of a, a separation in people who don't really appreciate maybe the, the style of coach he is or, or maybe he gets kind of discounted in a way. Um, I know there was there's a thing a few years ago where, where CBS does their – their, their candid coaches deal. And, and he was one of the coaches who came up as like one of the most popular picks for like the most overrated coach, um, which is, which is weird to me. And as, I don't know, how do you, how do you feel about his, him as a coach and how he's going to be viewed? Maybe, maybe big picture. Um, you know, maybe when we're a little further away from this, this moment of him retiring. Um, You know, I, I at least hope that for the most part, he's viewed as, an all-time great. I know there are people. Do you let me ask you a question? Do you like Nickelback? I think I think Nickelback went from really overrated, and somehow it's one of those things where they go from really overrated back to like underrated. Um, I don't hate Nickelback. I'll put it that way. Because I feel like Nickelback is that one band where it's like people almost just want to hate them. Yeah, it's and like, like I know they're gonna hate them. Right. It's like the thing I always hear is, "Oh, all their songs sound the same." And well, okay, but their songs are good. So shut, what do you want? shut up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so I would almost compare that to Roy Williams. Like, yeah, he's a one trick pony. He wants to get the ball the ball into the post and people just don't they, they wanna like look for something to say that he's not a great coach. They'll be like, Oh, he only gets top recruits and that's the only reason he's good. Which I almost think is tougher. He's taken guys who are the best players on every single one of their high school teams and every single one of their AAU teams and getting them to work together. He's taken like all these guys were the top scorers on the team. And then all of a sudden you have to tell, you know, I don't know, a Kendall Marshall, like, Oh, you're only an assist guy for us. And Kendall Marshall was great. Um, as far. And I think the other argument is, and I agree with this to a certain extent is that he's only a one trick pony. You know, he couldn't really adapt in recent years to you know, the three-point line, defending the three-point line as well, um, and that he only wants to feed the bigs. Um, and my argument to that would be, you know, I do agree with that. I, when I watch North Carolina, one of the things that always just makes me mad is how many open threes they get. And I see on Carolina Twitter just complaining. The thing I see all the time is death, taxes, and other teams making every single three-pointer against North Carolina. <laughs> but – with that, it's like they are giving up wide open three pointers. They do give up a t- ton of dribble penetration, which you know leads to people helping off, which leads to wide open threes. Um, so I agree with you know in recent years it's been tough for him to adapt to sort of let's just call it the Stephen Curry type of basketball, the, the Villanova ization or the Golden State Warriorization of college hoops. Right. So I do agree with that to a certain extent, but at the same time, he did win a national title literally four years ago with guys like Kennedy Meeks, Isaiah Hicks, and Tony Bradley yeah. rotating at the posts and playing through them. So it has worked recently. It's such a it's such a two sided thing. And like I'll hear I'll hear these arguments where people will will rip on him and say, Oh, he only wins with with amazing NBA play or with, with amazing talent. Uh, and then in the same breath they'll say UNC doesn't pump out any NBA players. Okay, those are con- those are contrasting things. Okay, so all that NBA talent that he's winning with is is going and doing great things. Wait, 
nope, that doesn't really work. Um, also, I guess the the idea that like a coach can be criticized for winning with great talent, it's like newsflash. The teams that win a lot generally have a lot of talent. You watch Gonzaga lately, uh, high talented team. They got two lottery picks and a bunch of four and five star guys. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's like we we obsess over this idea that it's like, do you, do you want to just be the little engine that could and win with a bunch of two and three star uh, Rudy type guys? That just doesn't really work. Teams that teams that do that are are flash in the pan. Like Virginia, the year I I always kind of reference back to Virginia. It's like they they won the title of the year they had three NBA first round pick guys. You know, I mean, you need high end talent to win. That's just the way it works. And I think there's this notion that there's the saying about about Old Roy that he just kind of he doesn't really do a lot of coaching. He just rolls the ball out and lets them play. Uh, and I do think there's some truth to that. He he lets his he lets his thoroughbreds run, right? He's he's got horses. He's going to let them run. He's not going to get in the way. Isn't that a good thing? Why do we want a coach that is going to that is going to try to restrict uh, high end talent and and be egotistical and only let them do this? Isn't it a good thing if you've got you know monster athletes to go and be like, hey, go play? Is that I don't know. Isn't that I mean, coaching doesn't always just have to be. You set a screen here. You run around the screen at this time. We're going to pass it to you at this time, and then you're going to shoot it. It's going to be an open shot. Isn't it just like, like you said, managing managing personalities and allowing players to have the, be in the state of mind that allows them to succeed? I mean, isn't that – I don't know. I, mean, I struggle with this. And I agree with all that. And one thing I want to add to that is a common argument against him is, you know, the timeout thing. He never calls timeouts if it if the other team is going on like a 10 or run. He let, lets them play. And my argument – in favor of that is, you know, in tournament games, I think you have to, you know, it's, if you, if you lose, you go home, but say if it's a game in December or January and you know, the other team goes on a 10 0 run, a 12 0 run, and you just call a timeout. Like, what's that going to do? You're, he's trying to teach them to, you know, think on the fly and be like, Hey, what are we doing wrong? What do we need to do to end this run? And like sort of teaching them that, you know, there's five guys on the court and they all have to depend on each other. They all have to work together and work through these problems. It's just like any group assignment in college. You're working together. You're working through whatever issues you have, any arguments, and trying to fix whatever adversity is coming at your way. And I think in the long run, when you're doing that in a December or January game, in the long run, that's going to help in a March Madness game. Yeah, I can see that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, hey, it's it's not the, it's not the destination necessarily. We're, we're on the, we're on the process here, so. Yep, and even if you lose that January game, it could help you and benefit you when it comes to March. Yeah, yeah. No, I just I, I think it's 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 so interesting where I I do agree with you that he struggled to adapt. Uh, the man's seventy one years old. It's not easy to adapt when you're seventy one years old. That's that's kind of okay. Like, I mean, it's not okay as we're watching. You know, you know how I I feel watching Carolina the last couple of years. It's it's been painful and. And I don't think he's an elite coach anymore. I mean, he's 71 years old. Why would he be? You know, there's just not – I don't think Coach K is an elite coach anymore either. You know, some of these guys just get – they get old. That's okay. I'm not I'm not doing an ageism thing here where all old people suck. I mean, it's just it, – it's the game is changing, and it always does, and it's going to change again. And the coaches now who are 45 and 25 years, they're going to be old. They're not going to be hip and cool dads anymore. They're going to be the old crotchety guys too who, who aren't changing. That's just like a, a circle of life that – weird when you're young and in the middle of the circle you you hate on the people at the top of the circle who are old and at the end of it kind of thing right end of the circle that that's that's kind of grim well that generally i think at the end of the circle you're thinking death hopefully they're not dead yet 
Coach K, I don't know. He might be dead, actually. He might be like a zombie that's just still out there coaching somehow. But um, what was my point again? I lost my track. I lost my train of thought. I, I don't know. Let's get on the Final Four. Good please. call. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Final Four begins tomorrow, 415 Central, Houston, Baylor. And then probably like a half hour, maybe even longer, maybe more like an hour. I don't know if they're doing any 7.30 is when the second one is scheduled to tip. I'm looking at it right now. Central okay. time. And so that's UCLA, Gonzaga, and that second game. And I guess my first question to you, Biggs, is, you know, we have two teams that are widely considered to be the favorites, have been widely considered since basically the start of the season to be the favorites to meet up in the championship. If that didn't happen, which game do you think is more prone for an upset? Oh, boy. (sighs) Hard-hitting questions to start. Yeah, I mean – on, on the surface, it's like, you know, both of our listeners are probably thinking, are you are you stupid? It's a one versus a two and a one versus an 11. Obviously, the one versus the two is more, probably more prone to that, right? The field is probably a little more, the margins are thinner between Baylor and Houston. And, and, and Ken Palm stuff backs this up too. It, I think I think Houston's three and Baylor's two. You know, they're, they're top five teams. Why would, a, why would the fifth team beating the second team really be that big of a surprise? Uh, and I and I think I probably would go that way. I think Houston beating Baylor would be less of a – it'd be obviously less of a shock um, in large part because uh, mostly obvious stuff. I think Houston's better than UCLA. I think Baylor is not as good as Gonzaga. Uh, so it's it's closer. Something weird, though, about just the way UCLA has been playing. They don't play like an 11 seed. I think it's it's really hard to look at these teams and – Avoid looking at that number right in front of their names, right? Uh, UCLA hasn't playing like an 11 seed. They've beaten, they've beaten Tom Izzo, Michigan State team on the way there. They beat a BYU team that was up a dozen on this Gonzaga team uh, a week prior. They've beaten Alabama, the the top number two seed, and they beat Michigan, a number one seed. Okay, so th- I mean they've gone through quite a gauntlet, a really a really good path on their way there, and also a team from Texas. Very true. So there's that. Um, and the way they, they play, I, I think I've always kind of thought, like, the only way anyone's going to clip Gonzaga, you cannot beat them playing their own way. You can't try to run and gun with them. They're just too good at that. They are A-plus at that. The next best team at that might be Baylor, and I think Baylor's like an A-minus at that. And UCLA is not going to try to run and gun with Gonzaga. I think their, their style of play is going to be we are going to try to win this game in the in the 60s. And inevitably, it probably would be in the 70s because it's like a shot making. But they're going to play really, really slow. And nobody's been able to do that so far. And, and I don't know if UCLA could, but I know UCLA is going to darn near try. Better than anybody else they've played. Creighton's not going to try to do that at all. Uh, even USC, I just don't think they're they're really equipped to do it. Even with their size, their guards are just not, their guards are just not very good. UCLA's got pretty good guards, I think. We haven't seen them play against Gonzaga. But um, I still tend to think Houston as much as it, it, it is. It's, it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, the Cougars are it's, – it's, it's a closer gap. I don't know. What, what do you think? I'm talking too much. Um, so when I look at these two, I look at the fact that, you know, to your point, UCLA has beaten some good teams. They beat Michigan State, who granted was a first – yeah, first four game just like UCLA. Um, but they were – playing very well in the weeks leading up to that. And then, um, you know, like you said, BYU, Abilene Christian, I'm not going to put too much stock into those wins. They're from Texas. 
Very true. But then in back-to-back games, they beat Alabama and Michigan. Whereas Houston, you know, like we've talked about before, they haven't played a tough team this tournament. They've, they haven't played a single-digit team at all. And I get the whole, you know, you play who's in front of you. I'm not trying to... Yeah, it's not their them. fault. Right. I'm not. Yeah, it's not their fault at all. But I'm looking at Houston, you know, ha- hasn't really had much of a challenge this entire tournament. Uh, and I look at UCLA, who's just been on a tear, especially with Ju Zhang, um, with Jaime Jaquez. And so that's why I would say UCLA is more more lined up for an upset tomorrow than Houston is. I can and I can I can see that just because yeah you're right they're so much more battle tested there's going to be something about they're not going to be I don't think they're going to be shocked and maybe they will because Gonzaga is just that much of an animal and they're just so much better than anyone else they've played but I think I mean UCLA just went through just went through in theory here the number five team and the number four team now they get a crack at number one I mean there's not a huge gap in what they're doing the best team Houston's play is Rutgers uh, and now they get to go play Baylor. You know, they just played Oregon State. Shouts to Oregon State. Great run um, getting to the Elite Eight. That's awesome. Um, they're not Baylor, though. You know, they're nothing close to Baylor. None of the teams are. UCLA has at least played comparable levels of qualities of teams. Uh, so I could see that. And and stylistically, I, I do think there's just something about the, the yin and yang. Houston's kind of – there's a lot of parallels with UCLA and Houston. I think they both want to play really, really slow it down grind it out kind of styles and Baylor and Gonzaga both want to get out and run and play fast and, and maximize all the, uh, or get a lot of possessions, right. And, and win in the eighties. So that's, that's kind of interesting. How do you feel about the two matchups in general? I guess we haven't really talked about what, which game are you more excited for? What game do you like? What do you, what do you like about the two matchups in general? I think the, I think it's going to be the Gonzaga UCLA is the one I'm more looking forward to. I look at these matchups and I was going to ask you this, but as far as, for UCLA to win, and I'm looking at the matchups, I see Tiger Campbell and Suggs will probably be on each other. Timmy and Cody Riley will probably be on each other. And then with the each te- team has sort of the more small ball, um, smaller four lineup. Um, so Nemhard, Ayayi, and Kispert for Gonzaga. Hawkes, Bernard, and Chuzang for UCLA. And I don't know how those wing players will match up on each other. But for UCLA to win, which matchup do you think they need to need to win um i think you have it's so hard because gonzaga's just got so many guys it's like i could say i could say you got to neutralize kispert um but kispert really didn't do anything in the sweet 16 or elite eight and they still won by double digits over a five seed and a, and a seven seed you know uh, you know the number two teams in the big east and the and the pac 12 i mean they just crushed them and, and kispert didn't really do anything he feels like a bit of a kind of cherry on top i think it's timmy uh, it's hard to, I don't know about you. I have a hard time watching Gonzaga lately and not thinking Timmy's their best player. He's, he's incredible and he gets a little annoying, right? I mean, a little eye roll when he, when he has to flex or do his weird thing with his, with his beard every single time he scores, but um, whatever. I mean, he's, he's like, he's amazing. And I mean, he just absolutely took it to uh, Evan Mobley the other night. I mean, everybody's talking about, man, all that, all that length and, Evan Mobley is, uh, you know, the superstar NBA prospect. And, and Drew Timmy just ate his lunch. I mean, he had like 15 of their first 20-something points. I mean, he was he was outstanding. And, and I do think, like 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 we've talked about earlier with Gonzaga, like they're not a – they're not going to shoot 43s and knock down 15 of them. You know, they're not going to just pound away threes on you. 
they get the ball. Timmy gets so many easy shots, and and he and he creates his own shots so often. They run the ball through him, kind of in that mid post area, similar to kind of like Crutwig a little bit, but nowhere near as as frequent because they've got so many other guys. But I mean, against high major competition in in like the in the five games in the regular season where they played like legitimate high major competition, and now like the three games or four games, whatever it is, I did the math. How many ever games they played? He averages basically twenty four points and like seven rebounds. So mm-hmm. you got, I think you got to find a way to get that to get that down. You got to slow Timmy down, and not allow him to just dominate the game because if he's going for thirty, he crushed Oklahoma with that. He crushed Creighton, and he and he destroyed UC, uh, USC. Uh, I, I tend to think Timmy's the guy that you have to find a way to to slow down. What, what about you? I was I was gonna agree with that actually. Um, just because that's bad. Rating. Cody Riley is a big. It's a big body inside, yeah. and you know he actually had his moments um, defending Dickinson, and then down the stretch against Alabama, getting a lot of big rebounds, some blocks. Um, and so if you're looking for one guy to neutralize and say, okay, we're going to neutralize him and then Suggs and Kispert, hopefully they don't go nuts on us. Um, I would say they need to stop Timmy. Um, and, yeah, like you said, I don't know who's going to match up on Kispert. I don't know. Between Hawkes, Bernard, and Juzang, I don't really know who's their de- who their defensive specialist is. Well, they all – I mean, with, with the thing about the, the benefit of playing all these guards who are all kind of the same is is a lot of times nobody really guards anybody full-time. It's, it's a lot of switching, and that's what Gonzaga does a ton too. It's not like they just put – they don't just kind of put Jalen Suggs on, you go guard this guy and don't let him score. It's, it's a lot of the times it's kind of – it's almost like a – it's almost like a matchup zone that's kind of an NBA thing now that's come down to college is teams do just a ton of switching. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if with, with more examination, that's part of why Gonzaga is just their ball movement. It's so hard to guard because of so much switching. You have to be really connected. You hear that all the time, right? Gotta be, y'all gotta be on a string. Gotta be connected. Everybody's connected. Right. Um, and, and that's even more important when you're doing a ton of switching, you're constantly passing a guy off to the next guy and, Oh, these two guys are next to each other. All right, I'm taking this one. You're taking that one. A lot of times these teams now are so, you know, everybody on the UCLA is basically, you know, all those, all those wings are like 6'6", 200 pounds, something like that. They're all kind of the same size. They're all going to probably spend time on Kispert. They're all probably going to spend time on Ayayi. They're probably all going to guard Suggs a little bit. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't think there's any one individual Hawkins versus Kispert matchup. I, I do know... UCLA absolutely cannot win if if Haka like any of them really probably don't play well. You need you need Juzang to to keep scoring a ton. I mean he's been piling up twenty points a game. You can't win if he's not scoring a lot. And I think Haquez needs to. I think Haquez is probably their best perimeter defender uh, from what I've seen. At least he can maybe he's their most maybe he's their most versatile defender. I think he's pretty good at guarding guarding your guards. He can guard kind of big guys. He can play up a little bit. I would imagine he probably spends the most time on Kispert, but uh, but it might be useful to have him kind of help in a help situation kind of thing where maybe he's guarding Ayayi, but Ayayi's tough too. Boy, I can talk myself in circles here trying to figure out how you how you try to slow down Gonzaga. I I, I just think UCLA needs. I mean, Juzang and, and Hakez have been their two best players through this whole run, and, and they've got to be they've got to be awesome. Yeah, they might need between those two. They probably need. 35 to 40 points if they want to win this game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing with, 
with that, I mean, it's it comes off as coach speak, but you just can't turn the ball over. How many? How early in that game? How many times did USC guys just dribble into the lane and Gonzaga, Gonzaga defenders would just take the ball away from them? It's like, ooh, I'll take this. And we're gonna lay up. Well, Timmy, Timmy picked it from their point guard. I think it might even have been for the first bucket of the game against USC. Yeah, and and they did it. They did it several times in that in that early run where they, I mean they got up twenty in the first like five minutes of the game. It felt like. And there were so many of time, so many times. I mean, USC had like seven turnovers in their first like ten possessions. Um, if you turn the ball over against Gonzaga, they are getting a layup. So I think Tiger Campbell, he's not the only guy that handles the ball, but you know he's he's kind of the orchestrator. He's kind of a throwback kind of floor general type who's not going to take a ton of shots, but he just kind of keeps everything in control and he's a really good decision maker. Um, maybe not with his hairstyle, but really good decision maker on the basketball floor. Um, they need to. They need to be. Able to, that's the key to controlling the tempo. If you turn the ball over, Gonzaga gets layups, and you have to keep everything in, in kind of a really condensed. Imagine. The, think about the way Villanova played against Baylor. Think about the way Virginia plays. You hate that, but I think that's the. You have to play something similar to that. You have to play a really slow, grinded out style. It's the only way you're going to be able to beat this Gonzaga team. I think. Yeah, and to your point on uh, Tyre Campbell's hair, um, you know. In the in the programs, you know, Suggs has the height advantage, six four against five eleven. But is he going to be able to see the court well enough to get the ball in the right place as he's looking at that hair? Can you imagine if Tiger Campbell decided like I'm gonna I'm gonna hit up target and I'm gonna grab some like some moose, you know, like uh, oh here come my dog, he just ran down here because I always call him moose, but uh, or, or like some some hair gel and he just decided to go straight up like mohawk with that thing. Would he legitimately be seven feet tall? He might be. Other other idea. What if he just decided to shave it all off in a surprise, and then he just comes off with a bald head in pregame warmups? Gonzaga would be like, "Where's where's that Campbell kid? Like, I don't even know who's this little midget. Like, he is probably like five ten without the hair." Right. Um. So yeah. Just anything else? Like- <laughs> got to get Gonzaga off their game. You've got to do something wild like that. Um, so yeah, let's uh, go over to the Baylor-Houston game. And you actually released an article yesterday. And one thing that you talked about with Baylor is... Where can you find that article real quick? Sorry to cut you off. Uh, it's uh, midcourtmadness.wordpress.com. Okay, sweet. Um, content weekly, I think. We'll That's see. about right. Yeah. <laughs> but you talked about how they sort of rely on that one-on-one basketball. And it's almost like you know one possession, it's... Davion Mitchell's turn to create something and then it's Teague and then it's Butler and they just go back and forth which to a certain extent they're all really good at it um they're all good at creating either their own shot or dump it off to a post player but Houston has such good guards that they might be able to sort of defend against that yeah you're that's a great point that that might be it's a great point piggybacking off my great point look at us just making great points together this is why we make a great team um Houston might be the team best equipped to defend that kind of Baylor, your turn, my turn. If they fall into that kind of trap, and, and I do think they, they do that a decent amount because they are so good at it, it works. It's like, hey, this is fun. I just get to dribble the ball, and I get to go one-on-one, and I'm going to get in the paint. And it, it works for them a lot of the times. Houston's got, got guys, though, who can probably turn the faucet off on that. right? I mean, Dejan Giroux is – He's been, I mean, I don't know. We don't make like an all defensive team. Uh, that'd be cool if we did. We probably should maybe. Like an all defensive team from this tournament 
Giroux's got to be on there, right? I mean, he's just absolutely shut down whoever he guards. Mm-hmm. So yep. I don't know who you want him to guard. I mean, probably, probably Butler, maybe. I don't know. Oh, for, then, oh, for sure. Yeah, he's on Butler, and then um, Grimes and Sasser, Sasser would. Grimes, I'd say no. I'd say just put Giroux on Butler the whole time. Give yeah. trying to give him fits. Um, I mean, they're similar size wise. I guess Giroux's yeah, a little Six five to six three, and yeah, that works in his favor too. If yes, you know, but Butler coming to the tournament averaging seventeen points. If you can limit him to like ten, Houston has a chance. Agreed, um, but I, I but yeah, I think Houston is is maybe one of the very few teams that is equipped to just basically if Baylor ever wants to try, if they fall into that trap, I think they could be they could be in a real problem because Houston, you won't be Houston playing that way. Um, and I kind of, I kind of equate it to like, you know, you know, a comedy show and, and swearing, you know, it's like, you can, but do you need to, you know, or, or should you, you know, it's kind of like the guy in Jurassic Park. He's like, oh, you're too busy. You, you've seen, tell me you've seen Jurassic Park. I'm shaking my head. No, to people listening. You haven't seen, do you watch movies? You know, a lot of my friends ask me this. Not a ton, actually. All right. Do you watch TV shows? What do you watch? Netflix, yeah. Okay. Cur- right. Currently watching Last Chance You. You should get the the new basketball season. It's pretty nice. good. Last Chance You. Okay. All right. I'm trying to think what I I haven't really been watching any TV shows lately. To be honest with you, I think I got to start Justified. I've heard that's really good. Um. Anyway, I kind of equate it to to that though. It's like just because just because you can go out there and just drop f bombs all over the place, does it really add to your show? Do you really have to? Can you do it another way? Maybe that's not the perfect comparison, but I think I, really, I think when it comes to comedy, it's a shock factor. Like the shock gives gets people to laugh about it. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, maybe, maybe the first one. After that, though, it's yeah. like, all right, I'm I'm numb to this, you know. But I think that's a little bit the same thing with Baylor. Just because you've got guys who can break people down off the dribble, do it, do it organically. Don't don't force everything so much. And and that's what it frustrates me because in the first half of that Wisconsin game, you. I don't know how you watch the first half against the Wisconsin game a couple weekends ago and think this team is winning the whole thing. Like they looked so good. They, they, they were dominating that game and Wisconsin's not a great team. Right. But it was stark just how, how much better they looked. And you could say the exact same thing then against Arkansas five minutes into that Arkansas, you're going, this is a freight train. You're not stopping them. And then they fall into this, this trap where they just, they, they go into the tank a little bit because they they don't keep moving the ball and keep doing the stuff that they're good at, and I do think if they if they do that against Houston, I think they can get got. I think they're better than Houston. I think they're quite a bit better than Houston. Uh, if they play what if they do what they're good at against Houston, I think they can be Houston by double figures. I don't know what the spread is on that. I bet you it's like five and a half or something. But I'm not a great gambling mind. Five, five, five. Yeah. So I mean, I think they can beat Houston. By double figures, if they if they play the way they're they're capable, which is weird. Of course, every team can beat another team if they play the way they're capable of playing. But I think Baylor's ceiling is a lot higher than Houston's. Um, but I do think if, if if they fall into that where they're where they're doing the dribble happy stuff, I, I think Houston can beat them. That's that I think plays right into Houston's hands. Yep, and I think the key player in this game, at least for Baylor, um, would be Matthew Meyer. You know, he's not he is a guard that comes off the bench. But he's a guy with a lot of length, six nine. He can stroke it from the perimeter, and he doesn't really fall into that, you know, one on one mentality. He's more of a, you know, get he you comes in spot. and just pumps up shots, right? 
And so I think he could be a key player for them if he can come in, knock down two or three three pointers. Um, he could be a key player to get this victory over Houston. And that, that's the that's the thing with with Baylor that I do think makes them so tough too. Is what makes them so good is they've got, you know, they 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 all the old cliche. Yeah, we have seven starters, and usually that's just kind of coach speak for like, yeah, I, I like my bench guys and I want them to be happy too about not starting. So we have to keep them happy because they have huge egos. Baylor has guys though who come off the bench who can like give you legitimate juice. I mean, they can get forty points from their bench. You know, Adam Flagler the other night had, I think he led. He might have led them in scoring against Villanova. I think he had fifteen. I mean, he he's a he was a double figure scorer for a big stretch of the season. Then he kind of cooled off down the stretch. Um, and Matthew Meyer is the same way. Like Matthew Meyer is like, think about like an NBA like like a Jamal Crawford or like or with the T Wolves back in the day they had JJ Barea who was awful to watch with the T Wolves. Those are the Mavericks, and he's and he's watchable. For the Wolves, terrible. But he's one of those guys where he comes in, and within the first like minute or two, you kind of know: Are we getting good? Are we getting good JJ Barea, good Jamal Crawford, or are we getting bad JJ Barea slash Jamal Crawford? Right? You kind of know right away. Like he's he's either got it or he doesn't. And and the benefit of that is he's your seventh man. So if he's got it, we ride this thing as long as it goes. You know, deck the deck's hot. We're gonna keep playing you because you're gonna score probably twenty points in in eighteen minutes. He's really that capable. He's capable of doing that. I think he's done that. Meyer has. Um, if he's not, your ass is playing. Your your ass is on the bench because you're going to play five minutes a game. You're going to miss four shots, and we're not going to play you. They've got that kind of. They've got that arrow in their qui- in their proverbial quiver. You know, he, he's capable of coming in and legitimately changing a game in the snap of a fingers. Very few teams have that. I don't. I don't even know if Gonzaga has that kind of thing. Uh, Houston absolutely doesn't. They they can't keep up. If this game gets into a high-scoring kind of up-and-down affair, Houston's got no shot. They need to play slow. They need to be kind of like what UCLA, uh, their their plan needs to be against Gonzaga. It's got to be a lot slower because they've got to grind out the game. Um, yeah, I, I think Meyer is – he's an X-factor for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think we covered this game pretty well. Um, just to put a bow on it, I think where Baylor um, – really separates himself self from Houston. You know, we sort of talked about the yin and the yang where Baylor wants to play one-on-one, but Houston just has too good at defenders. But I think where they really separate themselves is with, like you talked about, you know, Meyer and Flagler coming off the bench, be able to provide that scoring output. output. Um, so I think that is where they win this game. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that, Biggs? No, I would agree. I would agree with that. Um, you know, you hear all the time in the tournament, Clark Kellogg will always, he's got, he's got his little, Clark Kellogg-isms, and and my favorite one, I think, is spurtability. So many of these games are really close for for 30 out of the 40 minutes, 32 out of the 40 minutes, right? Um, And really what it comes down to is like that four-minute spurt where one team goes on a 10-2 run, right? Or one team goes on a a 12-0 run, and they end up winning by eight points in large part because of that run. I think Baylor has a lot more spurtability to them than Houston does. And, And I think that's the kind of thing that will put them over the hump in this one. All right. So yeah, that'll do it for this podcast. Um, we plan on releasing the next one, I'd say Monday morning, and we will, you know, recap the games that we just talked about and then give a preview of whichever two teams make the, the championship. Um, so we'll see you then. Um, in the meantime, check out our Twitter. We'll be tweeting during the games um, at Midcourt Madness and go on our website, midcourtmadness.wordpress.com. Read some articles. Biggs, I mean, the grammar is always there. The points might not always be there, but he, he, he at least knows grammar. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm just, just check it out.
<laughs> yeah, go check that out, and we'll see you again on Monday. Woo!